introduce the episode here. And three, two, one. Hello and welcome to another edition of A Humanistic Perspective. As always, I am Chad Castilla, and today I have the fortunate privilege of being joined with Carl. Carl is a multicultural book writer with over 150 works in multiple languages. He's a nomad of the world, having traveled and seen uh, many of the beautiful countries in which are on this continent and planets of ours. And I want to thank you, of course, for joining us, Carl. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chad. Good to be here. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. So I like to open every episode and go all the way back. As much as I can, I like to see the influence and the development of who you are as a person from the beginning of your life to now and how that has maybe um, inspired and, and been a part of the art you've created with the novels you've written. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm 54, so it's quite about a bunch of history. <laughs> sure. I, I can't wait to begin it. <laughs> So uh, where, where, where does the story start for us? I believe San Francisco, correct? Is that where you were born and raised? I was raised in the Bay Area, raised in San Jose, California. Loved Silicon Valley, very multicultural. Sure. So um, did not enjoy reading or writing as a kid. No kidding. Did you go, grow up in the public or private school system? Public schools. And I think okay. it was partly because of that. I think um, the books I'd been exposed to were boring textbooks. Mm. I was in the third grade before I found that books could be fun. Right. And do you, did you have any teachers or any, any, any sort of inspiration in the school setting or were you sort of outside of the school? How did you, how did you handle your time in your younger years? So um, I'm the youngest of four. So we were just, you know, we don't, you don't have the, the restrictions that kids mm. have today. There wasn't worry of being kidnapped or assaulted or anything. So we were just all over the place. I mean, we would go miles on our bikes. And did but, you live um, in uh, downtown proper for the city? No, I was in the suburbs. Um, in fact, we we were on the edge of San Jose when I was born. And then by the time I graduated high school, there were miles and miles and miles beyond us of developments. So wow. Silicon Valley had exploded by the, that time. And were both your parents working? Did you have a stay-at-home mother? What was that experience like? So I had... Um, a uh, stay-at-home mom. My dad worked for the Treasury Department of the U.S. government. Wow. Um, my mom had health issues, so she wasn't uh, up and about as much as as other moms. But she, you know, she shared history and all kinds of things with us. You know, she just loved to sit and talk with us. Sure. And so uh, you get into high school, and and do you see yourself then becoming a writer? Do you want to go to college? Sort of. What is your mindset at that point in time? I thought I might become an architect maybe, or a, a rock singer. <laughs> sure. Were those like your, uh, your interests outside of school? Uh, yeah. I mean, I loved art. I loved music. Um, so yeah, trying to find my place. Did plan on going to college, but I didn't know what I was going to major in. Okay, sure. And where did you end up going to school? Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Oh, I love Utah. Beautiful state. Yeah, it's beautiful. And so what did you end up studying there while you were there? So I ended up in journalism simply because it was a short program and I wanted to get through quickly. That was my undergraduate. You're like, how can I get in and out of here? Easy A's type of stuff. Yeah. And yeah but I really ended up enjoying the program. Loved um, writing in the AP style. Sure. Concise to the point. And I guess that translates well toward uh, kids books. Did you have any uh, dissertation or interesting pieces of writing that you did during that college time that you can remember? Okay, so so a lot <laughs> of my books started 
uh, while I was in college, when I should have been doing homework, I was writing story ideas. No kidding. And what was one of the first stories that you wrote? Uh, Crumbs on the Stairs, a mystery in English and Spanish. Mm. Now, did you, when you started writing, have the intention of, I want these books to be multicultural? Or was that sort of something that just came out of the creative process? What was sort of going on there? So um, the world I grew up in was extremely cosmopolitan. And yeah, I mean, just, it was just a natural thing that the characters would be of different cultures. In fact, when I would see kids books with these all blonde hair, blue eyed kids, I would Mm -hmm. think that doesn't reflect the world that I know. (laughs) Sure. And it's actually very interesting that you bring that up because I believe Joe Rogan, he's a similar in age and he grew up in San Francisco area at the exact same time, uh, Mm -hmm. reflects a very similar experience. Um, Growing up here in the Chicago area, like I remember my school system, it was extremely diverse. I mean, everywhere you looked, we had people of all different ethnicities and races, and that was sort of actually normal. But uh, actually, was this quite forward for the area and the time for you guys? No, it's funny. Um, I've been aware of other races, obviously, since I was a little kid. But um, even after I started, got my first book published and started my own publishing company after working with a couple of publishers, um, I was surprised to see Publishers Weekly and these big organizations discussing race in children's books as still being a problem where it wasn't representative of, of the real world. And I was surprised because this was like 2005, 2006. And I thought, wow. even now, publishing is like, <laughs> this isn't reflective <laughs> of the world. Sure. And so when you first write your stories, are you where's your creative inspiration coming from? Is, are you pulling it out of thin air? Or are you pulling it from personal life experience? Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I get ambushed by ideas, just bizarre things will come to my mind and I'll scribble them down on a piece of paper. I have files full of um, ideas on scraps of paper and you know, I, sub- I separate them by character, by plot, by setting. Mm. But I mean, I'm never a victim of writer's block. I sure. constantly have things to write. Wow, that's fascinating. What is your creative process from start to end? Could you describe it for for a book? So some books I've written down in 20 minutes. Some books took five months to write. It just depends on the topic. Like the the longer ones have been um, nonfiction. I've been doing Mm -hmm. a series of biographies on immigrant kids, just stories that I found in my own family history, you know, ancestors from Sweden or South Africa or Scotland. And um, so I wanted to, you know, gather all the records and make sure I got the data correct and present an accurate portrayal of what these kids went through immigrating to the USA. Sure. Could you describe one of these uh, stories or portrayals that you talk about potentially? Sure. Um, the one I just finished, in fact, I can show you the cover. Cool. It's called Samuel Sailing. It's about my great uncle, my grandmother's brother. The family is from South Africa and they had a thriving bakery business and, um, during World War I, um, my great-grandparents decided that they wanted to move the family to the United States. And they sold their bakery, they sold their home, everything, wow. bought passage um, on a lumber freighter, of all things, because it was World War I, and so passenger <laughs> freighters were few and far between. Anyway, right after they bought their tickets, um, their oldest boy, Samuel, got um, typhoid fever and was hospitalized. No kidding. And so his parents were just agonizing over what to do. And because of the war, they weren't sure that they were going to be able to get passage later on. Mm. And um, so they felt like they should take the rest of the family and leave their son behind in the hospital. Wow. Was that, that was the decision that was made? Yeah. I mean, 
they were in tears. They didn't, they didn't want to do it. And of course, it was even harder to tell their son in the hospital, look, we're leaving you. But when they did, he said, you know what? I'm going to be okay. You go ahead and I'll follow up later. Wow. And, and what do you have like written and depicted from that period of time still? So I have my great-grandfather's journal. talks all about he and his wife just agonizing in tears. And then I also have my great-uncle's journal about how he was in the hospital. And he was like, no, I wasn't worried. I wasn't afraid. <laughs> 11 years old. And uh, yeah, he recovered and um, sailed with some other Americans and met his family. Wow. No kidding. So when you're thinking about this story, what are you, are you trying to just tell it as honestly as possible? Are you trying to get a message across in the underlying tone? What is your core, I guess, goal or intention when, you know, writing? So I, as a kid, I hated books that had a moral lesson, mm. but at the same time, you can't communicate without conveying some value. Even no matter if you try not to convey a value, you're still communicating values just by telling a story. So yeah, I just try to get the facts right and let the, uh, let the words of the protagonist mm -hmm. show what he was feeling and going through and then let the reader gain what they want from it. I want to go back to your time uh, in college at Utah. Is there any experiences that you can reflect on that you would say, wow, that had such a big impact or change? What, did you do any traveling at this time while you're in undergrad or is that after? I did, I did like four internships um, for my undergrad. I worked for a publisher in Massachusetts. I worked in Washington, D.C. for Congress, a congressman. Um, I worked for a, a charity in Salt Lake City, Children's Miracle Network. And all of these gave me opportunities to write press releases and um, mm. uh, reports for potential publications, things like that. And uh, yeah, I was so grateful for my training because in high school, you had to like multiply your words, make as many words as possible to fill the essay requirements. But for my um, undergrad, and brief and to the point was what they wanted. And so I loved that. That's nice. And so do you, do, you, do you see that you, as you get older, you still write with that concise style? Or like when you're writing children's books, do you try and you know, make, maybe make them a little more um, colorful, flourish off the pages more? Like what is, what is that like? Yeah, I still get feedback from beta readers who say, you know what, you could describe this more. <laughs> I have one novel to my credit, and um, that's a novel that I co-wrote. It's a Western. And fortunately, the co-author um, got all the detailed descriptions out. And what my job was to, was to develop the characters, fill in holes in the plot. So it was a great partnership. Wow. Do you uh, journal for yourself at, at night or at any time? Do you do any free writing or any of these uh, type of therapeutic and or like uh, expressive activities to grow our cognitive brain? So I haven't done free, free flow writing for a long time, but I do keep a journal. I've kept a journal for most of my life and it's very brief. Mm. <laughs> um, it, it turns out it's just a list of 10 things that happened during the day that I was happy about. And it kind of helps my outlook. And it also serves as a journal. I can look back at what happened on a certain day. That's fascinating. Do you think you would ever take all those journal entries and turn them into a, a work of, of a novel themselves or something? So I haven't really drawn on the journal, but I am currently writing a book that's based a lot on my story. It's more of a self-help book, mm. but um, it does have a lot of um, vignettes from my life as examples. Sure. So um, I've used a lot of my history. I want to go uh, maybe to the internships again. From those four experiences, was, was it 
what were maybe the biggest takeaways between them? And was this sort of a time when you're doing a lot more formal writing? So you're realizing you want to do more like creative writing and story writing or. Yeah, I was constantly writing stories and setting them aside. Um, I think one of the biggest things I appreciated in the internships was working in DC and finding out that the Republicans and the Democrats are all the same party. (laughs) They just use different words, but they're basically the same. Sure. And, um, so I, I arrived a Republican, I worked for a Democrat and I left an independent. Ah, I love that. But, yeah. Cause I was like, okay, these guys are the same. Right. And so that was a great education. And then also, um, one of my professors taught me something really important. And she said, I, she said, I only have a master's degree, but I have a bigger office than a lot of PhDs at this university. And the reason for that is because I know how to communicate. And I know how to get to the point quickly. She says her colleagues would write these long emails to the supervisor and she would just write a paragraph, you know, and, and get her message across quickly and easily. And they loved her for it. That's brilliant. I, I, th- I see myself that as I get older, I try and do that. I'm like, how, 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 many, how many less words could I use, but then get a more effective, powerful point across in my writing? Um, which is, it's interesting. And I, I wanted to go back to, cause I'm, I'm, I just recently graduated my undergrad degree. Um, and I'm always thinking about these concepts, you know, a, a lot of the more free, more, uh, uh, like base level concepts, right. Of love, of freedom, of, of, you know, what, what does sacrifice mean? I, I, I wanted to ask from your perspective, was this something that you're thinking about and uh, uh, impacted your writing when you were starting your novels in college? So I didn't, I didn't want to be preachy. Um, and, and once I was more aware that my books were kind of standing out because they were multicultural, um, I made a point to describe them as without agenda, without propaganda, because the message wasn't diversity. Right. I was telling stories. I was saying, I just happen to have characters of color in my books. I'm not preaching anything particular. Because I don't think that kids or adults like to be preached to. Yeah. I, I like that because it, it's almost, it's like, if you want to normalize something, just let it occur. And then by it occurring, it will just become, you know, routine. And I like that approach with your books. It was less about, Hey, why are we trying to identify a specific race? Why am I not, why not just let this piece of art live as it is? And yeah. then you get what you can from it. That's so brilliant. So you you finish up at Utah. Where do you go next? What what is what was next on the journey? So it was years before I went to get a master's degree, and that was in political science, just because I love it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, in between, I got I met a gentleman who published my first book. He actually died the day we were printing the book, wow. so I had to get a crash course in what to do next, you know, to promote it and get it out there. And did you have any mentors, or did he have any? people in his life that were helping you or did, were you just like, well, I guess I, now I'm going to open a social media channel. I guess now I'm going to try and contact some news outlets, you know, and do all that or. Yeah, he was a great mentor. And I did, uh, fortunately I had some contacts from him, printers, agents, editors, things like that. And um, so it was, it was a hard knock uh, education in publishing. I worked with one other publisher wow. after that and had a bad experience there. So that's when I decided to start my own company. So I want to get into the weeds here. Let's know the nitty gritty, the ins and outs of publishing. What's what's the good? What's the bad? And where is our market currently at in this industry today in 2020? Sure. Yeah, this is what I get asked the most when I speak. I usually contrast traditional publishing with digital or, or self-publishing today. And I tell people, um, 
the large publishing houses still have prestige. Um, but what they used to have a monopoly on, they don't anymore, and that's distribution. Right. I think after my third or fourth book was out, I was able to contact the biggest wholesalers in the country and sign agreements with them directly. And used to be just the large publishing houses could do that, but now anybody can. You get a certain number of titles, of course, um, mm. and they need to be quality, quality designed and professionally edited. But uh, yeah, you can sign agreements with Ingram and Baker and Taylor and Follett. Now, what do your what do your margins look like taking out that middleman or the other publishing uh, company bef- now versus when you were with them? Yeah, so book publishing margins have historically been extremely tight. So I don't even know how there was ever room for the middleman <laughs> publisher or the agent or the publicist or whatever. Yeah, no kidding. Because even when I'm the direct distributor, um, margins are tight. I think I'm in a very competitive genre too, because everybody and their brother wants to write a kid's book. The, the thing that made me stand out is um, that I uh, never stopped marketing my titles right. and I continue to, to publish. So I have 25 books published books published and then about 130 products because of language versions and hard soft ebook versions and the nice thing about books that aren't for adults is um it doesn't matter if it's not new i can still promote my very first book as if it were new and it helps help sales that's fascinating because my next question was going to be how do you keep marketing when your when your market gets older but i guess it's not you just keep refreshing it because there's always new young kids around New families with new kids. Yep, That's... it's a pain that the that the uh, target audience ages out on the regular <laughs> right. basis. But really, my target audience is librarians and teachers, and then parents as well. Right, the the people who are actually going to get the books in the kids' hands. Right. That's so fascinating. So, uh, from from the publishing perspective, was it hard or difficult? Is it is it competitive to like um, get your oppor- get your chance to like bring on other clients? Is that something you're working on, or do you just publish for yourself? So I do distribute other authors, <clears throat> just some local people that I know. Um, I don't accept manuscripts currently from other authors, but I do look at uh, portfolios of illustrators because we have so many projects needing illustration that we're always looking for illustrators. I, I believe I saw an interview. You said you've done like a six to seven of your own books illustrated, but you, you'd like to hire out, right? Is that? Yeah, the professionals are quicker and, <laughs> and come up with ideas that are better than mine. Sure. Totally. I totally understand that. Like I, I, from a marketing perspective for our businesses, I love coming up with the ideas, but I'll hire all the guys that actually will create and produce the idea. But uh, that's so fascinating. So you started your own publishing company. Is this, so you went from uh, the, the company you learned at where um, your mentor passed away and then you go to another company that you hated. Is it immediately after that, that you just start your own? Cause you're like, this experience was horrible. Yeah. I, because technology had turned publishing upside down, Amazon, you know, all I had to do was upload files for paperback. And I do the same with Ingram. I upload files. The book doesn't even exist till a customer clicks on it and then it prints and ships and I don't have to touch it, but I get a royalty. That's really nice. You don't have to have inventory on hand. Right. And then also eBooks, the same thing. I use uh, Mm smashwords.com and they get my eBooks to all the major platforms and I don't have to do any work. I just collect royalties. Of course, I do a lot of work, marketing, tons of marketing. <laughs> yeah, no, running a business is not easy. That's for sure. Yeah. And where, where are you located? Whereabouts are you? Um, I'm in of? the Salt Lake Valley. Okay, nice. Yeah. So uh, after you start your publishing company, what year is this? About 2005. 
Okay, 2005. Do you go do your travels after this, in between this? What, what was sort of next on the journey? So uh, I lived abroad when I was 19 through 21. I served an LDS mission in South America and Chile. Wow. That's where I learned Spanish. Um, and then I did some traveling for fun um, and then for business. I used to be a technical recruiter in Silicon Valley. And then also in Salt Lake, briefly after I moved here, I was a recruiter and they sent me to uh, Eastern Europe. So I saw most of those countries, stayed in Spain for a while for fun. What, do you, what, are, some, uh, what, are, what are some of your favorite countries and like highlights there and some of the countries you were like, eh, wasn't my favorite? Oh, you know what? I don't think I could. <laughs> Can't call say, out. A- <laughs> no, I couldn't say that any country wasn't nice to visit because everywhere you go, you learn. I think travel is the best education you can get. Right. So, but my favorite place that I visited was Turkey. Mm. So much, so many layers of history. I mean, I could be there decades and not see everything there is. Wow. What What was some of the most like pressing experiences in in Turkey? Oh, the contrast between rich and poor, mm. the contrast between Muslim and Christian, the um, crossing the Bosporus straight into Asia. You're just right there. You're going from Europe to Asia, crossing one bridge. Just wow. So many powerful experiences. Sure. Sure. Uh, you said you're a big fan of politics and that. Is there any um, leaders or ideologies that fascinate you that you've studied throughout time? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the favorite books I ever read was a biography of John Adams by David McCullough. Mm. Just I'll have amazing. to add that to the list. It, yeah, do, because he was apparently an irritating guy. His peers <laughs> weren't crazy about him. But he, I kind of compare him to Churchill because they were mm-hmm. both kind of irritating. But in the time that they lived, that's just what the people needed. They needed someone to stick, you know, a, a thorn in their side and, and get them to do, get them to cooperate and compromise and accomplish right. some things. Mm, very fascinating. So uh, after the publishing company, what is, so what do you, what was, what was your routine? Did you, did you, do you have a wife at this point? Were you married? What was going on there? I came close to marrying like four times, never did kind of, <laughs> kind of dodged a bullet, I think. Sure. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and it's funny for someone who writes kids books, um, I always wanted a family, always wanted kids, but I don't have any. Really um, fascinating. But uh, yeah, I've had some great relationships and um, really satisfying experiences in my life. In fact, my bucket list is pretty much all checked off. I think the only thing left on my bucket list is I want to visit Greece. Oh, I, Mykonos is somewhere that I've been, I've been dreaming about recently. Yeah. But uh, so what was on the bucket list? I'm, I'm very curious. Oh, singing a rock band. I actually did it. Actually <laughs> what was the name of the band? Oh, also known as, because we couldn't decide on a name. <laughs> we couldn't agree. So it was also known as. But um, yeah, I sang in like three bands. A lot of fun. Did a lot of covers of classic rock and wrote some of our own stuff. Cool. That's yeah. fascinating. Are you a tenor or baritone? I'm a baritone. Baritone? But I have, fortunately, I have a wide range, so I was able to. Hell yeah. It's a power baritone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's so fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask, is copyright something that affects, how, how much is that affecting your work? Um, is there even chances to it, like what's the plagiarism look like for mere industry for, for children books specifically? It's gigantic. Plagiarism is rampant. Mm. And there's two schools of thought in publishing. One is don't try to protect your material from piracy because any reading of your work 
gets your work in front of more people. And I'm not sure where I stand on that. I do actually try to um, utilize the pitiful protective software things that exist on my eBooks. You know, I say, yeah, DRM, digital rights management, but it's easy to get around. Um, and so I see my, my pirated books everywhere online. Wow. Um, and since there's not much I can do about it, you can, there are legal recourses. You can send um, a takedown letter. You can contact them. But often those things get ignored. And so I just right. stopped spending my time trying to control that. And I just focus on getting new books out, new product, and doing the best I can to market. That's fantastic. Have you ever done an international book tour? Do you ever get to talk to fans or get letters internationally from people who are, are seeing your works? So I haven't received letters from uh, people in other countries, but I have from people in this country. Um, and I know that my sales take place in, in lots of countries. I can look at the reports, you know, where the sales take place. So it's kind of fun to see Ukraine or wherever that they're being bought. But yeah, a letter from a fan. In fact, one uh, came from an elementary school kid who decided he wanted to be a writer after he'd been, been exposed to some of my books. Wow. And there's nothing as gratifying as that to have somebody feel like they have a goal now because you helped them or inspired them. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. Like, I, I even just hearing people who are like, oh, hey, I checked out the podcast. Like, something about that is like, wow, it's, it's really um, unique to hear that people are, are interested and willing to listen. But I can't even imagine like your, uh, a work of your creative body is expelled from you. And then someone writes you that it actually impacted the way that they're living their life. Why? That's uh, crazy. Always nice to get. Sure. What is, would you say is like your, your, your personal like life habits and routines that you like to do that keep you in a good space as a writer? Oh yeah. I mean, what you always hear from everyone, get a regular sleep schedule, you know, <laughs> stay hydrated, exercise, that kind of thing. But yeah, a writing schedule too. I tell writers, um, if you want to get a book out and you don't have a lot of time, Plant yourself on, in front of your keyboard every day at the same time, even if it's for five minutes. But if, if you get there every day at the same time, hopefully you'll have more than five minutes and you'll be able to crank stuff out. But just the daily, ad, the daily writing adds up. Sure. How long was it before you were self-sufficient from your book sales and you didn't have to take extra gig jobs or find other side hustles? Like for a new writer, what is, how long is that break period usually before you become financially uh, sufficient off the work? And how hard is that period? Oh, well, writing has never been a great source of income. It's funny, you think of writers or authors as being multimillionaires. And there is J.K. Rowling, but <laughs> most writers are not multimillionaires or billionaires. Um, in fact, most never are able to quit their day job. In fact, I quit oh. my day job early <laughs> before I had enough income. But I, you know, I was really committed. And, uh, and yeah, it's, um, it's a battle. Royalties are what's called residual income. Right. So some people define that as making money while you sleep, which is true, but, uh, you, you can never stop marketing and you can never stop um, writing. If you just have one book, you're not likely to make a living off of that one book. Sure. Now that entirely makes sense. What would you say to a young writer right now in our current climate that's coming up? What is your advice to them? I would say, um, write your story, write um, what's burning to get out of you and not what's popular or trending. I'm seeing books now um, teaching children about um, the COVID virus 
or books about critical race theory. And these are trending topics. So there are people out there who will always want to take advantage of the topic and write a book on it. And, you know, there's a need, but I, I just think it's pitiful how many people will jump on the same bandwagon. Years, years back, it was vampire books. You know, mm-hmm. everybody was on that bandwagon. Really? So even authors are trying to like get that clickbaity title. Yeah. And, and that's something that can distinguish a good author from a bad author. If, if the author's motivation is what topic will make me money, I'm not impressed. Right. You know, a lot of people come up to me and they say, I've always wanted to write a children's book. And I'll say, really, tell me what your idea is. And they'll say, well, I don't have an idea. And for me, like I say, I get ambushed by story ideas and I have to write them down. They won't let me go until I write them down. Right. Wow. That's, it's so interesting to, to think about like something nagging you to the point where you have to expel it from your body like that. I've never, I, cause I'm, I'm a musician, but my creative process was never about that it actually was coming to me and I needed to expel it. Um, but I, I think that's, that's really unique from, from your angle to be able to, to experience that and deal with that. Oh, I hope not. I hope that most authors are inspired and ambushed by stories. Yeah, I, I would too. Right. I, I feel like sometimes there are a lot of people I see who write like um, autobiographies or something because they just know that if they can write this and tell this story or how, what's your thoughts on ghostwriters, people who have authors for them? Yeah, it's, it's needed. It's a, it's a great innovation because, mm. you know, this basketball star or that um, politician may not have the writing chops, um, but they have a compelling story that needs to get out. And so, yeah, ghostwriter fills that role perfectly. Hopefully they're compensated well. A lot of ghostwriters are not. Mm. Wow. That must be difficult then to try and make a living off that. And you're like, oh, my own works don't do well, but I'm such a good writer. I can make anyone else's story happen. Well, I think if they get to the point where they feel that they're that good, then they can make a go of it on their own. Sure. Sure. Entirely. You know, I'm, I'm very curious what, what now as you get older sort of inspires you, makes you want to get up every day and, and keeps you, keeps you going. And has that shifted from when you were younger or is it actually the same? Um, it has shifted. I um, grew up being very comfortable on my own mm. and so I'm not talking publishing right now. I'm talking just my life. What's shifted sure. for me is relationships have become a lot more important to me than they were for many decades. I was a slow, I was slow to grasp that, you know what? Relationships are the important thing. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I heard the other day, I was listening to someone talking and, and uh, he was interviewing someone and he goes, uh, you know, how often do you see your parents? And the guy goes, I don't know, maybe twice a year. And then he asked, how old are your parents? And they were like, oh, there's, you know, 76, 78. And they're like, well, assume what? They probably have, you know, until 80. So what you're going to see them maybe, what, six, seven more times in your life? And it it was such a a unique way to think about count how many experiences you might have or interactions you will have with that person. And like, are you really absorbing and and using the most of that time possible? Yeah. And then to really answer your question, I'm sure it was about publishing. And that is when I get up in the morning, I want to share a story that will be memorable, a, sh- a story that will entertain. I do like the idea of people learning from my books, but I hate the idea of trying to teach, you know, having a lesson or a moral. So right. um, with these kids' biographies of ch- child immigrants that I've written, I've written four now, published four at least. And um, I love being able to give my nieces and nephews stories that actually have a, a personal connection to them because it's their <laughs> ancestor. That must be so cool at show and tell. 
to be like, oh, by the way, this story that has existence, it's my family and that's yeah. beautiful. Um, so I wanted to ask, have you ever written any stories for uh, adults or have you ever thought about writing books for an older audience? Yeah. So I have this one novel, this Western novel called To Swallow the Earth. It's also mm-hmm. an audio book. And I have a book of short stories um, that I edited, but I was a contributor. And then I'm working on a second book of short stories. And then also this self-help book that should be out in the fall. It's called The, Shel- the Self-Help Book is called More Than Two Choices. What are some of the uh, concepts that you're trying to get across in the self-help book? I know you don't like to teach, but that might be highlighted. Yeah. And in fact, here I am teaching now in this self-help book. <laughs> but it's, it's lessons that I learned in my own life. And it's basically the biggest message is so often we um, restrict our options to right or left, up or down, black or white, when there are so many more options usually than two. I entirely agree with that. Do you, do you ever feel that, I, I'm curious now from like a, a personal philosophy level, um, do you believe that we have personal choice or do you believe that we have a, a perceived personal choice? Yeah, I, I don't believe in fate. I believe that everybody does have their own agency, their own free will. Sure. That's fascinating. Okay. I like that a lot. Yeah. And that can affect you and the, those around you for good and bad. Sure. Sure. Entirely. And do you, uh, what is your, your, you know, your uh, spiritual philosophy, if you don't mind me asking, what is your uh, religious background? So I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. Very so, nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, very Christian. We believe we've always existed. We don't believe that God created us. We believe that our intelligence has always existed. Sure. And, and, wow, uh, that's very fascinating. So it's the idea that it like all existed and then we just happened to be like uh, experiencing it at this period of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a lot of friends that are into reincarnation. And the, while I don't believe yeah. in the same um, processes they do, we both believe we're eternal. And that we're always growing and developing. Right, right. That's fascinating. What is your personal concept on love? What do you define as love? Wow. Um, I think giving of yourself for the benefit of someone else. Mm. Um, and it doesn't have to be material giving. It can you know, be giving of your time, of your energy, your insights. Sure. I like that. Do you, what is the, uh, this is a, this is a very ethereal question. What is the purpose of life? Do you believe there is a purpose to life? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think the purpose is joy. Mm. I think we're here um, because knowing our options increases our power and um, making good choices and having lots of options um, can lead to happiness. And we, and this is our experiment. We're, we're making right. good choices and bad choices and learning, okay, well, this is the, the better way in this case. And yeah, we're learning how to be happy. Yeah, I, I agree with that every day. I, I There's not a day I wake up where I'm not just like excited and eager for the opportunity to explore that, the fact that I have no idea what I'm about to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you, what are your uh, inspirations reading wise? And do you have a, a list of books or recommendations you can make for audience members that might be hearing this? Oh, wow. Like a short list of, okay, you should read this, 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 and this before you die. <laughs> David McCullough, absolutely David McCullough, 1776 and John Adams. Okay. Um, even if you don't like history, you're going to get some great insights, not just on the United States, because you could be in um, Thailand 
and learn from the birth of our country what how difficult it was. Sure. Um, other authors, um, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, still one of my favorites, um, dealing with prejudice. And we all have prejudices. Oh, yeah. And, to Kill a Mockingbird's a fantastic novel. Yeah. And then for kids' books, Shel Silverstein, um, love his work. Mm-hmm. Gosh, there's so many authors. <laughs> um, one, that, one that helped me fall in love with books, of course, was Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. series. Yeah. That's very flowery, very verbose. Not like me at all. <laughs> You're I, I would, more succinct. I would skip his poems when I was a teenager. No <laughs> kidding. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I wanted to ask, what is your what is your personal thought on the current climate that we're, we're living in and what's going on with coming out of a pandemic and that did this affect your writing process at all, seeing what was going on globally? No, it didn't. Um, I don't think I, I almost feel guilty sharing this, but because I'm in Utah and our restrictions were mostly voluntary. I mean, they gave guidelines mm-hmm. um, in our state, but, and people were very cooperative here. Um, but so we didn't really have a lot of um, imposed restrictions on us. And so my routine writing at home, that wasn't affected much anyway. Um, but yeah, I do see polarization in the world. I see um, a lot of um, a lot of sources of information and uh, a great difficulty for everyone, even someone trained in journalism like me, uh, having a difficulty finding sources of information that you can rely on. Because yeah. there are just so few. Truly, is there is there any uh, relations that the U.S. has with other countries? I'm going from a political perspective here that intrigue you right now, or that you're watching, that you're um, keeping an eye on. Oh yeah, I think China and Russia are playing us. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think, I think uh, they're a lot more cooperative with each other than we say they are. I would, and um, I, I think agree. they are contributing to a lot of the divisions in our country. I think they're trying to. Um, increase the racial tension, trying to increase the tension between rich and poor, things like that. No, I, I entirely agree. I, I think it's so fascinating to see, uh, I would say, like an urban war threat being social media and the, the uh, dichotomy created through technology. Um, I, I guess I want to ask your perspective. I'm sure from a marketing sake, technology and social media has been a fantastic thing in your in your life and to your business. Um, but from a personal perspective, what are your thoughts on social media? Um, you write children's books. I mean, this is something that's really affecting the kids that are growing up nowadays. What is your sort of thoughts on that? So I'm on social media a lot more than I normally would be if I weren't a publisher, but because I have to get my work out in front of people, I'm on social media a lot. Um, and I try to not uh, rub people the wrong way, but I had to decide at some point that if I was going to be an honest person, some people were not going to like things I said, but I couldn't constantly muzzle myself. My highest priority could not be that someone's feelings not be hurt. My highest priority has to be to the truth. I love that. I like that moral conviction. Like you, you just know internally, like this is what, what must be done. And then like, I, I, I really admire as I'm getting older, I, I, and I talk to more people hearing what they say and actually taking it with a lot of, you know, meaning and, and something that, that I notice is like the people who I look up to the most have that they have a strong will and, and a truth and they stick to that and they follow that and they don't let other people maybe sway that 
especially right now when we're in a time where there's so many ways and things that can distract you or, or yeah. guide your path. And of course I have to be diplomatic wherever possible. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go out there and say that, that my position on this or that subject is so important that it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. <laughs> I have to be able to be persuasive and that involves those unnecessarily. Sure. I want to ask your thought. Uh, do you believe that we are the only species of intelligent life in this universe? What is your thought on uh, aliens and or other intelligent beings existing? Wow. Okay, that's a hot topic these days. It is. Oh, it's an extremely hot topic these days. I believe that we are certainly not the only inhabited planet in the universe. I think there's probably more worlds than we could count with, sure. with beings on them similar to us. And so whether or not they are uh, affecting our life here on earth, I don't know. Mm, I, I would, I would agree with a similar boat like that. Like I, I definitely think there could be um, other species or other living entities that we don't know about, but they don't exist similar to how we exist um, in our space, which is fascinating. I have a, a very interesting theory on, you, you know, all the UFOs and the sightings that the United States government has been coming out with and the Pentagon and all that. Yeah. Part of me thinks that, because I find it fascinating that it's never happening over Chinese warships or Russian warships. It's always the American warships. What well, if this I think is, it does happen to the Chinese and the Russians too. You think so, but they don't oh, report yeah. it? Well, I think that gets reported, but we just don't hear about it. I mean, what, when do you hear about something that happens in Belgium or anywhere? No, it's usually sure. U.S. news that we hear. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point too. I guess I saw it as I haven't, th I haven't seen any of this. So what if it's actually United States technology and it's oh. more of an idea of boasting or showing these other countries oh hey here's some unidentifiable objects but really it's like okay this thing can go mach 15 everything before it can only go mach 3 hey it's us sort of like power showing a power move but then hiding it behind that i thought uh, that would be a fascinating yeah I, have, yeah I have wondered you know how much of it is man-made um i have no idea yeah just, me neither but very interesting topics to explore nonetheless <laughs> So how many more books would you say you have in you for your career? Do you see yourself retiring or do you see yourself putting out content until the end? Oh, yeah. I think I'll never retire because we have folders <laughs> full of ideas that I'm trying to get to. Completed manuscripts, I only have about two right now. And that's a, a first in my history. It's been years since I've had that few that um, were just manu completed manuscripts. I typically have 10, wow. but um, I've been... I just put out three books this year. I'm going to put out three more, which is double what I normally do in a year. That's fantastic. When's, when's the next one in the cycle that we're, we're looking at seeing published? So, gosh, my short stories are about ready. So maybe August. Okay. You heard it here, folks. Stay tuned for August. <laughs> this is very exciting. Um, what is your, like, your most underrated story in your opinion? Like if someone went through your entire catalog, what's the one that you're like, I wish they would have checked this one out? Two, and it, it is mind-boggling to me because uh, children's book sales are so hard to predict. Mm -hmm. In my 16, 17 years of being a publisher, this is the first year where I've been able to predict what my bestseller will be. All the previous years, I could never predict it. And two <laughs> titles that went under the radar when they were published, one is called Polar Bear Bowler, A Story Without Words. Okay. And the other one is Why Juan Can't Sleep. They were done by professional artists that did 
outstanding jobs on these books. I think they're among my best books and yet they're among the lowest sellers and I don't know why. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to go check those ones out. (laughs) That's fantastic. So do you, do you find yourself, what do you read like now? Do you, do you read for pleasure? Do you read for therapy? Do you read because it's just something you have to do as your career or what is your relationship with reading? Yeah. Gosh, I do not read as much as I would like to now. It's funny, as a kid, I tried to avoid it. But um, I do a lot of industry publication reading. Um, I, I read um, scriptures and I read um, mostly uh, reports. Um, there are organizations that will summarize things for you because I don't have time to dive into the entire nonfiction book. Right. And um, so... I get like political summarizations. I get um, spiritual summaries. I get um, summaries on other books. So, have yeah. you uh, read a book called The Fourth Turning by chance? No, but I've heard of it. It's it's a very interesting book that talks about it, generational theory, basically, and um, that the United States has been in a cycle of of four twenty period years generations, and right now that it says and predicts that we're in a a crisis period. Um, which is, is fascinating to, to think about. Do you think that we could potentially be in a crisis period, whether that means a social crisis, a actual physical crisis, or do you, do you think that's something that could be occurring right now? Yes. I think for individuals, crises come at any point in their lives. But if there's, if there's like a cycle for society, I think there, I think there is. Sure. Yeah, you believe, do you believe that history repeats itself? Yeah, I think prosperity can lead to decadence Mm. and that can lead to um, chaos and anarchy. Yeah. And then people will get back to their roots and and their core values, hard work, et cetera. And they'll go back to prosperity again. Uh, Entirely. Actually, that's you pretty much summarize the entire book right there. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) It's fascinating. I mean, it does take into consideration how each of our generations was born into those periods and how that has interplay leading to that next generation. Um, which is, I think, a very interesting uh, dynamic. What would you say is the most important values and traits um, in your life? You, I know, I know, we talked about that. Staying true was one of them. That true. Yeah. Um, are there any other ones? Truth and love, because they they seem to compete, but I think there is a happy way to walk both lines. Um, I haven't figured it all out though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, truth and love, and. Um, Empathy. I think that's what society needs most right now is being able to put yourself in someone else's position and take time to learn, you know, someone else's story. Yeah. Was there ever, could you maybe talk to, cause I think for, you know, a lot of my younger audience, it's great to hear a lot of people. I know a lot of people specifically from the pandemic around my age, a lot of people are feeling lost or they're getting depressed or they're not sure just because so much was uproot, uprooted and changed so drastically in their lives. Um, is there a point in your life where you faced tremendous amounts of adversity and how did you get through that? And could you maybe talk to an experience like that in your life? Wow. So I got sick in South America, like every month I'd have some kind of food poisoning. Oh. It was all new microbes down there that my body wasn't right. used to. Uh, even in the water, would you say in that too? Oh, especially in the water. <laughs> so uh, when I came home, I felt okay, just not quite right in the gut. And over the years, I've had to eliminate more and more foods from my diet because I found they were making it worse. Wow. Uh, and that's why I'm thin. 
because I can't eat carbohydrates now. So that was a huge challenge. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. What does your diet mostly consist of now? So meat, eggs, and vegetables. And and no physician has been able to figure it out. You know, the last doctor I talked to said, you're the expert. So manage it. <laughs> wow. So what region did you think you picked this up from? So I was in Chile, which is a very developed country. Right. Um, probably the most developed country in South America. But again, it's just different microbes from what's up here in North America. And you've talked to, have you had your stomach surveyed by like immunobiologists and stuff? And I've been to everybody. <laughs> really? And yeah. no one has any plausible explanation based on the region or anything? Yeah. Um, one physician said there are so many microbes, the medical profession couldn't possibly know what each one is or does. Right. And so it affects you by uh, carbohydrate intake. It, it, does it create like, a, like what are the, some of the symptoms that occur? Yeah. So it always feels like I've done sit-ups the day before. Mm. That's just my normal. That's how I feel. Mm. But if Dang. I eat carbohydrates, then I'm like writhing on the floor in agony. Wow. I'm so sorry that you experienced that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Fascinating. Okay. And so just changing, were you worried at first about changing your lifestyle and, and having to adapt and deal with it? But Oh yeah. My brother's diabetic. And I, I remember as a kid thinking I could never give up sugar. Sugar <laughs> was the first thing I had to give up. That was 20 years ago. Sure. Um, but I'm sure you're super fit. Do you work out with it or do any uh, calisthenics or anything like that? I do strength training, but I don't do a lot of cardio. I have a okay. friend who's a, who's a doctor and he says, you know, if you're not eating carbs, you really don't need cardiovascular workout. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure your body's always in ketosis just from a, a lack of carbohydrate consumption. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Very unique. I, I wanted to ask, what do you, what is your next 10 years look like for you? What are your goals and life objectives? Where do you see yourself going? Holy cow. Um, yeah, I, I want to get this self-help book out hopefully by the end of the year. Um, more family stories, hmm. uh, I'm working on summarizing 14 journals, each one this thick from my grandfather. I want to get it into wow. one volume. So that'll take at least 10 years. And how, what, what are some of the fascinating occurrences in his journals? Oh, so he was born to Swedish parents in um, Utah, grew up uh, speaking Swedish in his home and finally learned English in Idaho. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he, served an LDS mission in Germany. He traveled, he was in world war one in Germany and then he traveled to Australia, lived there for a couple of years, um, was kind of a pioneer in our church in California, Silicon Valley. Great guy. One of my heroes. It's fantastic. What, what is a, what is the thing that you look up to the most or the most admirable? Oh, that he had apparently perfected the principle of love, you know, mm. the one I'm still working on. Same here. Same here. <laughs> That's fantastic. Of all your family members and all of the, the stories that you have from those experiences, what is the one that I guess would stand out the most? Would it have, have to be your grandfather? Or? Oh, family experiences. Wow. <laughs> That's a loaded question. Sure. Uh, I, I had an experience a difficult experience the last few years with my, with my family. And mm. it's funny because we've always been pretty close and family is one of my highest priorities. Right. And I had to step back a couple of years ago and reorganize what I called family in my life mm. and redefine that. 
what do you, what do you define as as family? Is it about a more biological thing, like you actually have blood connection, or is it more of a a uh, metaphysical connection with someone? So I believe we'll always be responsible to our blood relatives, right? Um, but um, we can choose who we associate with. Mm, I would agree. Yeah, that's amazing. If you had <clears throat> one one piece of advice from all of your life experience that you've had that you could impart on someone, what would that be? Wow. Um, I think what I've learned is if I am down or depressed, I'm focusing too much on myself. Mm. And it seems counterintuitive, but going out and doing things with other people, doing things for other people will actually make your problems smaller. I love that. Yeah. I, I, I think that's something that's so true right now is like social media is highlighted so much specifically to my generation that you're trying to live like other people's lives. Or you're trying to feel so fulfilled. And because of that, you actually feel so empty. And because of that feeling, you're not doing these selfless acts or trying to go experience or live for others. And I do think that's something that we need more of nowadays, which is a great sentiment. Fantastic. Yeah. So I wanted to ask too, uh, publishing in 2021 is working with Amazon pretty much the best way to go or what's, what's the best strategy if I wanted to open a company right now? Wow. Okay. So I'm having a real struggle with Amazon right now. (laughs) I started advertising um, on Amazon last year and uh, I went from getting a regular monthly check from them or deposit from them to paying them every month for my book sales. And if you get Maybe I'm wrong on this, but my understanding is if you stop advertising your books, uh, they'll put your books in a worse position than if you than before you started advertising. So last year was a painful learning experience, and I'm finally getting to a place where my ads are paying off again, and, and Amazon's paying me again. But it was wow. so painful. That's interesting. So is that are there a lot of algorithms you're having to deal with to distribute your book? Yeah, and they're mysteries. Nobody knows what they are. Is it, do you find that, what is your thoughts on like a lot of these big tech companies and the idea of like censorship and their ability to switch these rules like that so often? Like, what do you, what are you thinking about that? Yeah, I think it's very troublesome because people who have been in publishing have historically been very anti-censorship mm-hmm. and yet Amazon and other companies now are censoring books and authors. And you know what, if there's a bad out, bad idea out there or a destructive idea out there, it will fall off by all by itself. Right. It will die by itself. But to censor, that's just the wrong approach. I would agree with that. I, th- I think we've, we've seen that that doesn't work with things like the war on drugs and, and other, and other uh, yeah. things occurring. But, you know, I think that's very fascinating. I've never, I've never thought about it like if you leave it alone, the things that, that are bad will just fall off. But, you know, that's, that's unique. I, I wish more people would think that way. <laughs> so... Moving, uh, moving into this upcoming year, what are, do you, do you ever like set goals for yourself on a year to year basis? Is this something that you're, you're working towards or is there, or is it just sort of like you live life and how it happens occurs? Sure. Um, well, I still have grease on my bucket list, so I'm publishing, uh, and wanting, working to go to Greece. Um, yeah, books. I just have a list of, of the books that are most ready to go. Sure. And I just try to crank those out in order. Um, but sometimes one will have a message that I think is really important and, mm-hmm. and I'll make that a priority. 
Um, it's fun to have that list. It's fun to see that list every day and check off titles as they get published. Is it important while you're writing to be writing and then to be editing second? Or are you writing and editing all as one? Like I've heard, I don't know, I've heard some authors that are like, you just need to write and then edit. And I've heard others that are like, no, 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 I'm doing it all as one. What is maybe your thought on that? And how could you help as how how could I as a writer get better from understanding these processes? I used to just write, just get it down. Okay. And as my skills increased, I would naturally edit as I went. Just save myself time. But I always hire a professional editor as well, because if you've been looking at a manuscript for three weeks, you're going to be blind to any errors that are still there. So you've got to have a professional editor. Could you talk me through the life cycle of creating a book? How many rounds of like going back and forth with an editor? Like what is that? What are the stages of a book before it's published? So a book should have more than 10 drafts. I think even a kid's book. Um, some people write their wow. book 40 times. So yeah, I, um, even after I have uploaded files to Amazon, I will find things that can be expressed better and I'll rewrite them and I'll upload a new file. So that's cool. So there isn't like a, you can't go back and revise it. You can always be changing it. Yeah. Technology is great now. You can <laughs> upload new files, but yeah, with the editors, of course, because you're paying them, you don't want to go back and forth with them 18 times. So, um, there are three different kinds of edits. There's a line edit, a grammar, spelling, punctuation edit, and a story of plot plot edit um they're all important and um very worth paying an editor and in fact most editors are quite affordable mm. if you publish a book that has not been professionally edited the readers will be able to tell and your sales will reflect that sure understood that's fascinating you're you i saw that you have done some digital media work right with different colleges and teaching of that um what what is your background with that digital media and how did you get into that so uh, I started teaching about six years ago. I started teaching at two colleges at the same time. I taught journalism at one school and digital media at the other and um, loved teaching journalism. But the pay at the other college was better. So I'm still mm -hmm. teaching digital media, which is basically the Adobe Creative Suite and photography, video, animation, things like that. It's, okay. it's a broad class to expose students to a lot of different options, graphic design, web design, things like that. So do you have the, uh, have the content and the crux of that class benefited your marketing and ability to publish your own company? Well, um, it's kind of the reverse because I'm a publisher and do my layouts and InDesign and do Photoshop for illustrations and illustrator. Um, I got the job because I had those chops because I had those skills. So the teaching came because I knew the software. But Are you nobody... on the track for tenure? Uh, no, I just teach part-time at night, a couple okay. nights a week. Okay, But right. um, I, I should say, nobody knows all of the Adobe Creative Suite, even its creators. <laughs> Plus, it's constantly changing. <laughs> Very yeah, they're always updating it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, have, a, I have content teams for a business. Like, I, I, I pretty much just, I, I use a like final cut and stuff. And I edit all of this and mm -hmm. I'll cut it all together myself. But um, for, for some of that more like graphic detailed work, I'm just not like physically creative in that regard. I, I prefer more to, you know, do the music or I have, I have my, myself tried my hand at writing, but I mostly like to do free writing on like deep thoughts that I'm having about uh -huh. like, like the other day I wrote a thought I had on dimensions and, uh, and how they play and how, uh, my own theories on spirituality and God played within dimensions, which I thought was fascinating. But, Neat. Yeah. Nice that you have time to 
to play around with that and write about it. But I think it is, I think you are artistic. If you create a, a production like this, that's art. Sure. Yeah, no, every, everything is now, right? There's so many, so many forms of media that really excites me. The future of uh, VR technology. I think that's going to be, I think it's going to change the way that all forms of media exist. For example, with a book, I, I love audiobooks. I think to me, the idea of getting to like watch the pages while I'm listening to it makes me retain it like 90% quicker. Me too. But the idea that I could potentially put on a VR headset and then create this immersive experience where the literature is running across a screen while I have a headset on that is giving me the sonic experience of being in the studio with the actual artist who is doing the, the audio engineering. I think it will, I think it will just take our cognitive recognition of these books and other concepts to another level when we start to implement some of these texts. Yeah. It's amazing what's going on. Yeah. Do you, have you ever thought about taking your uh, stories or your books and putting them into other mediums or other forms that might express them or basically guerrilla market the experience more? Yeah, I have um, I had a company create an app with one of my books. Wow. So it wasn't uh, a video, but it was an app that basically functioned as video where you could read the book in English or Spanish, you could hear it in English or Spanish. There was animation, there was music. And what's Whoa. funny is... Yeah, it was a great app. And then the company went out of business. And this is the thing. It's it's mind-boggling that um, this kind of thing didn't take off because a lot of companies tried it. And um, apparently kids or families, if they want to watch a video, they watch a video. If they want to read a book, they read a book. They don't like the kind of meshed experience, at least not the way it is now currently. Yeah, sure. I, it's fascinating. I think Maybe the timing, right? Timing is a big key thing. Timing and how it's implemented into the market. I could mm -hmm. see something like VR being so, it's, it's like you have to put this headset on. So it's like now it is a new experience where maybe the app was more, let's try and immerse this thing that was already there. But that's super fascinating. Have you, have you thought about doing that again with another company? Um, yeah, I think the technology is improving every year. And so we may get to a place where we do that again. I don't think I'll invest a lot of time or money in it yet right. until I see that it's going to work. But I do have an audiobook. My Western novel is an audiobook. Um, but picture books are hard to make into an audiobook. <laughs> sure. I, I want to check out that Western novel now that you mentioned it. I, it sounds very interesting. It and you co-wrote that one, right? Book. Say again? You co-wrote that one, correct? Yes, it's called To Swallow the Earth, and it won an International Book Award, plus was a Laramie Award finalist. Wow. How much weight? Let's talk about some of those awards and award shows. How much weight do those carry? Uh, is it hard to enter on? What is that like? So uh, they can be very prestigious and help your sales a lot, like if it's Caldecott. Um, but uh, other awards can actually hurt your reputation. If, really? if a distributor or a librarian knows that an award is a podunk award that you paid $500 to get into, it's going to actually hurt your reputation. So there's pay to play awards. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so bad. Yeah. Dang. Really? Would you say the, well, you said it was extremely competitive in the child book market, but would you say in general, the book industry is oversaturated right now with, with content creators or. Um, I wouldn't say oversaturated. Uh, there's, I don't know, 500, I don't know how many books are produced a year now, half a million a year. But, um, but the nice thing about publishing is um, it will weed out people who are not really committed to the art. Mm -hmm. You know, someone who publishes one book doesn't do a good job or doesn't market it like they should, won't be motivated to write a second book because sales will be terrible. 
Right. Right. And that, yeah, that uh, it's the same thing I think with podcasting too. Like uh, I heard a theorist who said, if you can't even get to a hundred episodes, don't like, don't even think about your show as it existing until you've reached at least a hundred episodes. That's wow. actually episode one. That's when you finally get that traction. And I think it, it's sounding very similar with books. Like you have to be dedicated and committed to actually creating the art and then putting the sacrifice forward. And then it, it follows. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. So do you have a, are there requirements from the publishers? Like I know, like, for example, like I, I know a lot of my backgrounds in music business, the entertainment industry for an artist, right? If they get signed to a label, it's usually on album deals and you have to complete a certain amount of albums and a certain amount of tracks per album. Do you right. have something like that for you guys? Uh, my second publisher, we signed agreements for two books. We never got to the second book because we had so much trouble with the first. Wow. And so you were able to break the contract. That's, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then it took me a few more years to get the rights back for, for the first one that was published, but I eventually did. Sure. I have a, uh, I have a friend who's in the music publishing business. His name is Sean um, had on the show. He does a, a deal with his artists where he basically lets them keep 51%, which is more than the other publishers in the concert and classical music literature space. Do you do something like that competitively with your artists to try and, or with your uh, authors to try and keep them on roster or anything like that? So I won't quote you dollars or percentages because they're sure. pitiful for artists. Pennies. Um, oh. But uh, a well-established artist can demand a certain dollar amount for, per picture book and get it. Um, I have paid flat fees like that. I've also paid royalties on sales. Okay. Most of my artists are getting royalties each year. True. And um, I think they like that I am the marketer. I think they like that I'm constantly marketing even the book from 12 years ago. Sure. Let's uh, maybe touch that from marketing. From your perspective, what is, where, where is the hot spots to be right now? What do I have to be doing from a marketing perspective? Well, that's what I was hoping you were going to tell me. <laughs> I, I could give you my, I could, I, I'd, I'd love to give you my input on it too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, after I do my list and you tell me what I left out. Okay. Sure. Sure. So of course, social media, but I don't pay for Facebook ads. Um, I do pay for Amazon ads. Okay. Um, not very profitable uh, until this year. So it's been about 18 months of figuring it out. Cool. Um, I do press releases. I do email lists. Uh, of course, I have lists of librarians and educators and uh, public appearances. But I don't uh, try to do book signings as my first priority. If someone invites me, I'll do a book signing. But generally, my efforts are better spent online. Sure. Um, do you use, what's your website and SEO traffic look like? So uh, my website is premiobooks.com. And uh, I think early on, I realized that people prefer to buy from an established website that they're familiar mm -hmm. with, like Target or, or Amazon. And so my books are on those sites. Um, but I do believe a lot of people discover my work um, on my site. You know, in a Google search, they'll find my books there and then go buy them on an established platform. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. And do you have, how does it work with relationships like Barnes and Noble online? I know that they have like their own in a, uh, like basically web library themselves that will redirect you. Do you have relationships with any of those distributors? Yes. So I used to upload my books to Barnes and Noble, um, but they get my paperbacks via Amazon and they get my eBooks from Smashwords. So I don't deal with Barnes and Noble. They send me money every year. <laughs> I still have a few titles that I uploaded myself, but other than that. 
How I, I know this might be a touchy topic because it is for me, and I I love I love bringing it up. TikTok, are you are you on it? Are you familiar with it? I'm not on it. Um, yeah, there are a lot of social media sites I don't use. In fact, I was on Twitter a lot, but it didn't. Uh, the payoff wasn't there. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like Twitter is Twitter is the wild west of the internet, and mm. so I I feel like. Uh, reaching your target audience and consumers isn't going to be as, as reliable on there. My only thought was, as you mentioned your target audience and your buyers being a teachers and parents and the communities are very, very heavy and thriving with like, you know, suburbist moms or community moms or librarians on TikTok, and they all follow yeah. their own format. So I know that that's a great way to build fast paced traction and then okay. to transfer it over. That's one that I would, I would recommend, uh, something to YouTube. I, I thought I, uh, when, when going through, I found, I found a lot of your content on your YouTube channel. So interesting. So like double down and, and even more of that, I think would be something okay. that is draws us in because I I'm fascinated from your processing and your brand. And I think a lot of parents could also be fascinated with who you are and who you stand for, um, both with your spirituality, with your contemplations on how our world and what our world is and your thoughts on just the freedom of letting the stories exist. I think that if you just highlighted more of that story through your channels and your mediums, people would become eager and, and enjoy that. And that would translate to more sales too. I could think, um, I would also say, I'd be curious to see how Google SEO could help improve. And I'm not talking Google SEO for maybe your name or your brand, but maybe some of your specific books. Have you set up like a Google, uh, Google My Business page for any of those? Or? I have, um, but actually not, not for individual titles. And I should do that for individual books. Yeah, I would be curious to see how that would play and maybe, you know, trying like a, your bestsellers or some of the ones that do better analytically and yeah. trying to implement some of those strategies. Um, I was trying to think of, other mediums i'm sure i oh how are book fairs how is that world for you guys those are a racket <laughs> okay um of course people do um go find great finds and meet authors at book fairs but um often the the fairs will charge the author an exorbitant fee that they they would never recover in book sales at the event got it as a speaker and they give me a table that's great. But I'm not going to go approach a fair and say, you know, here's $500 for a table. Sure. I'm not going to do that. Oh, another one I just thought of too. Uh, when I was working with a publishing company, with Sean and his publishing company, we would go travel around the country doing uh, music educator conventions. We did one huge one in Texas. We did a huge one in Chicago. I don't know if they have that maybe through K through 10, K through 12, like, uh, either administrator faculty ones and or uh, full staff English ones. Maybe there's an English educators association, but going to those conventions, I feel like would be a great distribution channel for expressing the book. Okay. That's a good idea. Yeah. I've never, I, I know that we, we pay like, like you were talking about, we paid a fee to be on the floor, but right. for three years we were on the floor and it actually got us a guest, a guest lecture spot and one nice. of the shows in a fourth year. Um, so I thought that might be a fascinating one. Um, I'm trying to think, I, I, I keep thinking too of stunts. Like, uh, I think it's so fat, like some of your books and stories, if you could hire a, a content creation firm, um, some. Hey, no problem. <laughs> Sorry about that. Cutting out again. All right. Uh, so I was finishing up with, um, some other ideas I had. <laughs> Sorry if I was ranting there, rambling. Yeah. Um, 
there was so there's a company there's a couple companies out there i know uh manscape is one of them if you've heard of them but a lot of these popular companies right now there's this one content firm i forget the name of them specifically but they hire them and they do very very well um return on investment based content Mm -hmm. creation based on your story and your product so if you took some of your most compelling stories and were able to pair with a company like that and somehow create content pieces that that can live in multi-format. So for example, right, if you can record one video, three video sequences with one company, and then each of those sequences, you know, I'm getting four TikTok videos, one YouTube video, wow. one Instagram reel, and one this out of each content series. I think that could help a bring up and boost up the content game, but also give a very good uh, visual interplay with your cool, stories for, for people to hear. Yeah, but I don't know, just some interesting thoughts I had on the concept. And I, I, it's so fascinating because I've never thought about marketing a book before. I'm usually trying to market a lot of products. So what I do usually is like, I'll go into community pages on Facebook or on Reddit or somewhere. I'll find a big page with a good following in my area or my target market. And I just join and I just start talking and being a part of the community, make other recommendations, this and that. And then all of a sudden when my product is needed or I can throw it in, I'll throw it in there. And just because I'm building more interpersonal relationships on smaller community pages, it's like that micro influencer outreach. Yeah. It's good stuff. Fun stuff. (laughs) But nonetheless, I, I wanted to, we always end the show with asking our audience and our guests, if you had one life wisdom or advice or experience that people should have before they're gone on this earth, oh, what, what is I that? think I mentioned it in, in traveling. I think travel is so enlightening. It just expands your vision, expands your mind. And, and the people that you meet, anywhere you go, you start to feel really connected to the human family because you realize that regardless of language or culture or race, you have so many things in common with the people wherever you go. Oh, that's beautiful. I truly, from even just getting to speak with you, I've wanted to travel myself and get out there and explore way more, which I do plan on doing. I would love to take the show on the road, go to other countries, just set up my equipment just in a random village or something Mm -hmm. and just talk to as many locals as possible, whoever, whoever could, I guess. (laughs) But I want to thank you and give you an opportunity here at the end. Do you want to plug anything you sure. have going on? Websites? So, yeah, my books, website I mentioned is like Premio that. Publishing, P-R-E-M-I-O, actually premiobooks.com. And um, yeah, I think the book that's doing, the one that I could finally predict would be my bestseller <laughs> is called Grow. It's how we get food, food from our garden. Um, oh, really taken off. Okay, so Grow. I'm out very now, pleased. Folks. Well, Carl, thank you for your time today. And uh, folks, thank you for joining us here on A Humanistic Perspective. And we'll catch you next week for another amazing conversation. Peace.